0: What is the meaning of life? It's perhaps the most central question at the heart of every person who has ever lived. What is my purpose? Why are we here and am I living my life well in light of that purpose? It might seem a little bit odd in a series entitled Ordinary Life where we're focusing on these everyday, practical aspects of our lives that we would make this sudden shift into these grand questions but how we understand the meaning of life, right? how we understand what things have value shapes all of the actions that we take every day. And that is why today we will explore the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes to wrestle with this question of meaning and purpose and as a result to hopefully see the purpose that is beyond the ordinary things of our life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, for this book of wisdom and how we are to live and where we are to find meaning. As we study it today, may it be your message that comes through. Amen. So, what is the purpose of life? Why do people, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, what do they gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? The book of Ecclesiastes introduces us to the, a wise man who seeks to answer this question. And he is known as Kohelot, or in the English we would say the teacher or the preacher. And he spends his life pursuing many of the things that we think gives life meaning. And so this teacher is conducting this grand experiment of life, doing to the fullest extent everything possible, everything that we think gives life meaning, pursuing wisdom, pursuing pleasure, pursuing wealth, performing labor, and ultimately, the teacher concludes that life is meaningless." It says in Ecclesiastes 12:8, "Meaningless, meaningless," says the teacher. "Everything is meaningless." However, there is more than one voice speaking to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so let's go a little bit more in detail and see where this book of wisdom points us today. Ecclesiastes is part of what we would call the wisdom literature. It's a collection of books within the Old Testament that give us wisdom in how we live. And we're journeying through these as part of our series. Now, a bulk of the book of Proverbs and Song of Songs or Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes are traditionally attributed to King Solomon. But Ecclesiastes, as I said, has more than one perspective in it. There is the teacher or the preacher who speaks through the bulk of the text, right? They self-identify with many of the features we'd associate with King Solomon. But there is also an author of the book, perhaps better known as the compiler, who has actually arranged it and taken times to put these words together and provides a short introduction and a short conclusion. At the end, it's similar in many ways to the Gospels. Much of the teaching, much of what we read that's in them is words of Jesus, but Jesus did not write the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did. These are accounts that have been recorded and compiled by another. And so the book of Ecclesiastes records these words of the teacher who were led to believe as Solomon, or at least someone writing in the guise of Solomon, where the true author of the book is unknown. Some believe it was some who came, someone who came later writing in the flow of wisdom literature, compiling the words of Solomon, or compiling various wisdom speakers into one book. Others think it might have been Solomon himself, that at a much later time in his life, after writing this initial section, he comes and he goes, I want to revise the intro and the outro of this book and comment on what he has learned since he's gone through this grand experiment. Now to understand Ecclesiastes, we really have to understand the structure of the whole book and we have to understand two key phrases that are repeated throughout it. So let's start by looking at this outline of the book of Ecclesiastes. We start in verse 1 with the words of the author or the compiler. It says, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the compiler introduces us to the preacher who we'll hear from we then get the first of these repeated phrases. It says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then we continue through the majority of the book with the words of the preacher, after which we come back to the same repeated phrase. Chapter 12, verse eight, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then we move to the final section, the closing remarks from the compiler. And so we get this structure of author, vanity of vanities, the preacher's text, vanity of vanities, and author. Again, it's this sandwiching of the preacher's words by this phrase, vanity. Right? Vanity of vanities points us to the reality that all his teachings can be summed up in this one phrase. So what does that mean? What does vanity of vanities mean? Well, the word vanity appears 34 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, We see it in verse 1, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity will sound weird by the end of this message. (laughs) Well, in Hebrew, we would read it as havel. Havel, havel, says the preacher, havel, havel, all is havel. And we render havel a, a few different ways in English. The English Standard Version uses vanity, but other translations use words like meaningless or futility. And this repetition of the phrase has this implication of it being a greater form of itself. Right? The Song of Songs refers to the best song. The phrase Heaven of Heavens refers to the highest heaven. The Holy of Holies refers to that which is the most holy place. And so Havel Havel refers to that which is the most Havel or the ultimate Havel. Now, meaningless, vanity, and futility, they do uh, a lot to capture this meaning of Havel, but in Hebrew, there's a little bit more going on. Havel might be more clearly translated as breath, or as breeze, sometimes as vapor or smoke, and it points to things that are fleeting and insubstantial. It's like a passing breath, its effects do not last. It is intangible. As one commentator said, it is plainly true that everything to do with human, indeed with all mortal existence, even if not meaningless, is nevertheless ephemeral or fleeting. The second phrase that we need to understand as we journey through the book of Ecclesiastes is under the sun. We see this first in verse 3, but this idea of under the sun is repeated 28 times throughout the book. It says in Ecclesiastes 1.3, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And it's important to understand this phrase because in many ways it shows us the scope of this grand experiment that the teacher has conducted. Right? Everything they have done, everything they have experienced, everything that they have pursued to find this meaning, to find this purpose is under the sun. It's locked into this limited, tangible, physical world. The teacher has not taken the larger reality of God into account. And so the reality of life under the sun is really marked by two clear boundaries. This is where the, the book of Ecclesiastes gets really fun, okay? Two clear boundaries, two realities of under the sun. Number one, the inevitability of death. Number two, the unrelenting march of time. Right, we read these ideas throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, but we specifically see them in passages like Ecclesiastes 3, 19, 19 through 20. It says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. All are from dust and to dust all return. Death comes for us all. It is an inevitability according to the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Death renders many of the things that we think give our lives value havel because we will not get to experience them. Right, the preacher speaks on this unrelenting passage of time in passages like chapter 1, verse 4. It says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and it hastens to the place where it rises. We continue in verse 10. It says, Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Right in the the grand scheme of the world, in the grand scheme of time, our lives are but a blink. When we are long gone, the sun will continue to rise and continue to set without us. The things that we have done will be eroded by the passage of time like the banks of a river erode over the generations. Everything that we do or feel as innovative feels like it has been done before, and everything that we think that we do is innovative will be forgotten in the years and ages to come. Life under the sun, life marked by time and by death, renders life vanity. It renders life havel. That is the overarching theme of this core section of Ecclesiastes. So let's now take a moment, we're going to look a little more specifically at some of the things this preacher has explored in pursuit of meaning. Well, this will not be an exhaustive list of everything that's covered in Ecclesiastes, more we're going to hit some of the broad topics, because the only thing more unrelenting than the passage of time is the countdown at the back of the auditorium telling me when I have to be done. So let's start with wisdom. It says in Ecclesiastes 1:12 through 15, I, the preacher, have been king over Jerusalem and Israel, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted." And so we come into this topic, we get this re-identification of the preacher as a king over Israel. A king who made it his goal to seek wisdom. Again, pointing us to Solomon as the author, the speaker of the passage. And it's unsurprising that we really begin with wisdom, right? Solomon's wisdom was famous. It was a gift from God. It brought him riches and honor. It produced justice and prosperity for the people. It attracted admiration and visitation from people all over the ancient world. Right? Wisdom was the very foundation of the, of the life of one of Israel's most successful and effective kings. But he continues in the passage, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow and in verse 16 the the preacher states their credentials they have acquired great wisdom they've surpassed all who have come before they applied to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly the preacher is basically saying i am the one who can tell you about this I am qualified to tell you about a life spent pursuing wisdom. And what do they ultimately conclude? That wisdom is like striving after the wind. It can never be caught. It can never be fully known. The author will continue to talk about wisdom later in the book. In some ways it redeems it, but it says here in chapter 2, verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has, has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them. All right, so wisdom gives more gain than foolishness. Wisdom has value. This feels more like the Solomon we would think of when we read Proverbs, right, the author of the wisdom books. But he continues in verse 15. It says, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool, and how the wise dies just like the fool. We come back to these limitations on this grand experiment. Death. No amount of wisdom separates the wise from the fool. Both experience the same result. At the end of life, both will die. Death renders the pursuit of wisdom havel, futile. And so the preacher continues on their journey. Well, if, if wisdom doesn't give meaning to my life, if wisdom doesn't give purpose, then perhaps a life spent pursuing pleasure and pursuing self-indulgence, maybe that will bring meaning. It says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. Vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had come before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I had singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. The teacher writes as one who has everything. There's no limit to the possessions and wealth and pleasure that the author consumes. There's laughter, wine, works, houses, vineyards, trees, parks, great flocks, male and female slaves, gold, silver, and treasures fit for a king. Singers, entertainers, many concubines. The preacher has it all, but we continue in verse nine. It says So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. This this level of self-indulgence is really captured in the phrase, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Every single desire, every small whim, every hit of dopamine that you can think of was available to the preacher. But does this ultimately help him to find meaning? No, he says in verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Pursuing pleasure is like chasing after the wind. Again, you can't catch it. There's nothing you can fully grasp. I think all of us should in some way be able to relate to this, right? In the the Western world, we are richer than most people throughout human history. Most of us have running water, heat, and enough food to sustain ourselves. But food is often not a conversation of sustenance, but of delight, right? We crave sugar and fat or the most Instagrammable-looking items because pleasure is more in the appearance of our food than what it does for us. We have a slew of entertainment options, from video games to streaming services, so much so that we are usually more overwhelmed with the choices we have than we are ever with our own boredom. And yet we never really feel satisfied. And you can say, yeah, well that's true, right, it's true of me, but I'm not ultra-wealthy, I don't have it all, I don't have everything, I just haven't got enough of it yet. But we see repeated stories of this being true, even for the ultra-wealthy. In an, an interview with the Ottawa Citizen, actor and comedian Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and have everything that they ever dreamed of so they know it's not the answer. TEDx speaker and marketing author Leonard Kim, writing on the interconnection of wealth and satisfaction, said once they attain it, the person sits there and thinks, that's it? That's what all the hype was about. I don't feel happy, I don't feel fulfilled, I don't feel anything. And so the teacher turns from pleasure to labor. Right, perhaps if the results of labor and toil don't bring meaning, maybe I can find meaning in the labor itself. Right, if self-indulgence is futile, can we find contentment in our work and our toil? Right, many of us, we look for our meaning in our labor. We see our jobs as a key part of our identity. It's one of the first things we often say when we're introducing ourselves. Hey, I'm David, I'm a pastor, and... And then we'd list our family or our hobbies or other things that we think are important. But usually our name and our job are the first two things we say when we're meeting somebody. A study from the American Psychological Association on the Effects of Job Loss reported that unemployed people were more distressed less satisfied with their lives, marriages, and families, and more likely to report psychological problems than the employed. Now we would say, well, that makes sense, but this quote comes after they have factored in and accounted for financial strain. That means that even when there's no change in security and no change in financial situation, the loss of a job has a negative impact on people because they experience this lost sense of purpose and meaning. For many of us inside the church and outside the church, whether we would articulate it this way or not, we put a huge sense of our identity and purpose into what we do for work or the ways we serve in our church or our community. And there are moments in the book of Ecclesiastes where labor feels more positive. Right? We read in chapter three, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man but ultimately labor right toil does not alleviate the sense of havel and futility it says in ecclesiastes 2:18 it says i hated all my toil in which i toil under the sun seeing that i must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool yet he will be master of all for which i toiled and used my wisdom under the sun this also is vanity So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart and with which he toils beneath the sun? My death means that any labor that we do will be handed over to another. It means that no result from our labor will satisfy us. There is no guarantee that what we leave behind will be appreciated by or built upon by those who follow. What are the results of a life spent pursuing labor? It says in verse 23 All his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This labor also is vanity. Later in Ecclesiastes, the teacher speaks of the pursuit of wealth and honor. It says in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. All right when well, one pursues a position as a goal, there's always gonna be some higher power. You might be the high official, but somebody actually runs the city, or you might run the city, but somebody runs the province, or I've worked my way up, now I run and oversee the province, but there's somebody overseeing the country. When we pursue this idea of being better or having more authority or having more honor, we always find that there is someone above us. We can never be satisfied in our search for position and honor continues in verse 10 he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income this also is vanity when goods increase they increase who eats them and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes it's like the theologian notorious big says more money more problems <laughs> right the more money we come across the more problems we see money does not satisfy The more you acquire, the more you have to spend. There is no end to this cycle of pursuing wealth. No amount of money will ever be enough. The love of money, the pursuit of wealth is vanity. The unrelenting march of time and the inevitability of death render all things futile. Wisdom, pleasure, labor, honor, wealth, all vanity. So what is the solution from the teacher? Where do we find the sense of meaning, of purpose? Well, if we're to remain under the sun, the teacher gives us one solution. It says in chapter 2, verse 24, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This idea is repeated. Chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of the life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in toil, for this is a gift from God. We see this, right: eat, drink, find enjoyment in all the toil that you have in the few days God has given you. Enjoy the wealth and possessions that have been granted to you, accept the limitations of life under the sun and seek to enjoy what has been given to you in this time. You see this again in chapter nine, towards the end of the book. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Put simply, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is to accept the vain and fleeting nature of life, to accept that time and death will ultimately take away the meaning of many of the things we think are important, and to enjoy the life we have. Enjoy a good meal. Drink wine with a merry heart. Enjoy life with those whom you love. While this might feel a little bit less depressing than the rest of the book, it still doesn't feel satisfactory. If I were to simply end this message right here by saying, life is meaningless, then you die, enjoy it while you can, and walk off stage, you might feel a little unsettled. I probably have to deal with some emails tomorrow morning. (laughs) Right, so where do we find ultimate meaning? Well, we have to remember that the book does not end with the words of the teacher. It ends with the author giving his final thoughts. Right, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, might be true in life lived under the sun, but the compiler of Ecclesiastes comes to paint us a bigger picture. To point us to life that is not under the sun, we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it says, "'Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd.'" My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. And so the author, the compiler, comes and gives us some information on the preacher. They were wise, they taught knowledge, they arranged proverbs, and they wrote words of truth. But this voice gets one final statement. Verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, And Keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil The whole duty of man man's purpose is to fear God and keep his commandments To fear God is to honor him to revere him to worship him as God to recognize him in his lordship And out of that worship, our behaviors begin to change, right? The whole duty of man thus involves genuine faith in God as well as our works. Why? Because God will bring everything into judgment. One commentator on this book says, The final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that everything does. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it will all have eternal significance. The reason everything matters is because everything in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. All right, the preacher has concluded that life under the sun is vanity. Life under the sun is havel. But the author comes in to tell us that there is more to life than that which is under the sun. Time and death are not the end of all things, there is something more. There is something greater, and when Jesus comes and is born and lives a perfect life and ultimately goes to the cross to die, he does it to set us free from life under the sun, to set us free from death, to invite us into eternal life. Jesus removes the restrictions the preacher has placed on this experiment. Jesus allows us to answer this question of meaning with an answer that is not under the sun. The preacher says that wisdom and knowledge are futile, but Jesus says those who know him know the Father. The preacher says that our desires will never be met by worldly means, but Jesus says whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The preacher says that our toil and labor is in vain, but Jesus says our work has an eternal impact. The preacher tries to prove that these questions of meaning are unanswerable. Jesus himself is the answer that we are seeking. And the preacher says, the inevitability of death renders life meaningless, but Jesus says that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The meaning of life is to fear God and keep his commandments. We do this not by chasing after the wind, not by chasing after Havel, not by pursuing things that are under the sun, but by chasing after Jesus.